0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading, short and deep, Death and the Compass by Jorge Luis Borges. We're reading it from the uh, first English translation that I could find, uh, New Mexico Quarterly's autumn 1954 publication, with a translation by Anthony Kerrigan, who uh, contributed to the magazine as um, uh, a regular thing, I think. Um, He presumably also wrote the editorial introduction, um, which covers a a number of the things in the story, but I'll just read the section regarding Jorge Luis Borges. And uh, I will also mention where it was first published in Spanish, which was uh, in the Editorial Sur, uh, which was published in May 1942. So, 12 years on, it gets an English translation. And this is uh, the editorial introduction from the 1954 publication. Jorge Luis Borges was born in Buenos Aires in 1900. During the period of the First World War, he studied in Geneva, Switzerland. Following his studies, he lived in Spain, where he became part of the ultraista movement. The avant-garde movement in Spain, roughly equivalent to the surrealist in France. He returned to Buenos Aires in 1921. At home, he has acted the part of a catalyst in Argentine letters, stimulating new talents and modes of expression, founding the journal Proa and the translating Virginia Woolf, Kafka, Faulkner, and Gide. He, his, Gide. Gide, okay. His own his own writings have been published widely on several continents. Um, I think he also did some like more SFF uh, author translations because I was looking at the magazines he was he was uh, writing in, and I th- I think he he had a lot of influence in bringing SF and uh, fantasy to Argentina. You mean Kerrigan? No, no, I'm talking Borges. Oh,
1: you mean Borges doing? Oh, yes. Yeah, he, oh yes. he
0: was pretty familiar with it. He wrote a sequel to a Love Lovecraft story at some point, and uh, there was a lot of like H. G. Wells and such in, in those Argentinian magazines, pulp kind of pulp like magazines.
1: Right. It's it's worth noting that uh, the the translations that he's being um, credited with here in Carrigan's uh, headnote are from English German and French. Uh, he was uh, quite an extraordinary linguist. He, he taught old English at the University of Texas at one point in his career. Um, so uh, he knows a lot. That's one of the frightening and delightful things about uh, Borges is that when you read his stuff, you keep encountering odd references as mm. if, you know, whoever heard of this book, but you said it as if, you know, like I would say, and in the, uh, And in Deuteronomy, it says this, Mm -hmm. except instead of picking something, he picks something which you've never heard of at all. But he says it in the same way so that it's like, well, what the heck is this? And virtually every time it turns out to be a real thing. Um, He ended his career, his professional uh, non-writing career, as the... uh, national librarian for Argentina. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to know all of those books because at that stage in his life, he was blind and still knew his way around the library.
0: Mm -hmm. A a Uh, labyrinth like library, no doubt. Undoubtedly.
1: Um, I would point out two interesting little facts in addition to about this little introduction. One is that it says authoritatively right off the bat, Jorge Luis Borges was born in Buenos Aires in 1900. Um, Every other source tells us it's 1899. Um, The second is that the journal that Borges is credited with founding is called Proa. Proa is a very interesting term. It refers to a kind of boat ship um, used in Indonesia, I believe, Mm -hmm. which has a prow at either end. Mm. That is, you can sail it in both directions. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you sail into port you don't have to you have no problem sailing out you don't sail out and turn around you just sail out it just changes its directions something that is can travel fore and aft i think is an interesting idea
0: Mm.
1: and that he named a journal after it might have some bearing on what we're going to be discussing today
0: i will um i'll also point out that uh naming uh, magazines uh, after ships or kinds of ships is actually uh, a little a little thing. The most famous one that comes to mind is Argosy, which is a kind of ship um, gives us uh, you know the Argonauts and etc. But um, magazines are found on ships. Uh, that's where the armaments are stored for cannons and such. and loading a ship, is loading it full of many things, which is what a magazine is. A place for the storage of many things. So um, it's never wrong to over-read um, <laughs> Borges, because he's already overthought it for you. And what's funny is, uh, I, I, I think this might have been the first thing I ever encountered by Borges. It um, ah. was a CBC radio drama adaptation in the 80s um, that I got on cassettes. And uh, I listened to this one and I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> and <laughs> even when I approached this the first time uh, after, you know, I need me some more Borges, I, I dug this up and I was very happy to find it was public domain. And uh, I realized I still don't get it. <laughs> so I, I went through <laughs> it again much more carefully, and I'm like, oh, I get it now. I- I'm pretty sure I get it. Um, it's quite different from a lot of Borges. It's got a lot of similar things going on in it, but I think part of the reason I didn't get it is it's it's more meta than a lot of his stuff is, which, you know, he's got his own tropes, the labyrinths and the mirroring and, you know, a lot of quasi-fantastical uh, fantasy Elements um, And this is more, obviously, um, engaging with... I mean, it's shouted out. Uh, and that's why I didn't get it the first time. I didn't know who C. Auguste Dupin was. But Borges loves Poe. And Poe is the founder of the detective genre, in a certain sense. And... Uh, Our villain in this piece um, has a name that's almost like Sherlock, um, although there's other reasons to think he's named that, uh, what he's named. Um, This is an engagement with the idea of mystery fiction, and more specifically, detectives engaging in mysteries. And I was noting just the other day, in an unrelated matter, that we have mysteries long before we have detectives. <laughs> Detectives are a relatively modern invention, but mysteries are very, very old. And they refer not to just the who killed the butcher with the candlestick, <laughs> but also to uh, religious mysteries, which this engages with, and with um, the mysteries of the universe, as in, what are we doing here? How do we get here? How do we know what we know about what's going on here? Um, and what will come after. And this engages with all of that all at once, um, and it has a a murder mystery plot, (laughs) which reveals itself in a very meta way. Um, So, with all that being said, I'd I'd hope you would roughly go over what happens in this story so that uh, everybody who's about to go read this right after we finish the show can... uh, have a, an idea as to what's going on and how it, how it goes there and why.
1: Hmm. Let's read the first paragraph mm-hmm. um, and a bit, and then I'll sort of try to indicate the the main steps along the way. Death and the compass of the many problems which exercised the daring perspicacity of Lonrot, none was so strange, so harshly strange, we may say, as the staggered series of bloody acts which culminated at the country house of triste le amid the boundless odor of the eucalypti. It is true that Eric Lonrot did not succeed in preventing the last crime, but it is indisputable that he foresaw it. Nor did he, of course, guess the identity of Jarmolinsky's unfortunate assassin, but he did divine the secret morphology of the vicious series as well as the participation of Red Sherlock, whose alias is Sherlock the Dandy. This criminal, as so many others, had sworn on his honor to kill Lornrott, but the latter had never allowed himself to be intimidated. Lonorat thought of himself as a pure thinker, an Auguste Dupin, but there was something of the adventurer in him, and even of the gamester. The first crime occurred at the Hôtel du Nord, that high prism that dominates the estuary whose waters are the colors of the desert. love to discuss that, but let's get the story right. What happens is a Dr. Marcel Jormalinsky, a Talmudic scholar, is discovered dead in the Hotel du Nord. He has been stabbed through the breastbone and ripped open. Um, it, this crime is investigated by Commissioner Trevoranis and Lon Rot. Um, and they discuss the problem of, you know, who is this and so on. And Commissioner Trevor Anas would like to just figure it's an ordinary crime and figure out who did it um Probably this guy was killed by mistake because he was in the room next to the Tetrarch of Galilee, who was known to have very expensive jewels with him. Uh, Galilee being an obvious connection in the religious levels of this story. Um, So they proceed with two separate investigations. What Lonrod does is gather up the books from... um, from the hotel room in which Jarom Olensky stays and, uh, nearby attracted by the crime. There are reporters, one of whom is, um, is, uh, turns out to be the editor of the Yiddish Zeitung 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 Zeitung. That is the, the Jewish newspaper, the Yiddish newspaper. Um, I'm only a poor Christian, um, Trevorina says, "Carry off all of those moth-eaten classics, the Yarmolinsky's books, if you like." Meaning to Yard, to Lonrot, I haven't got time to lose in Jewish superstitions. Maybe this crime belongs to the history of Jewish superstitions," murmured Lonroth Like Christianity, the editor of the Yiddish Zeitung dared to put in. He was a myope, an atheist, and very timid. And they find in the typewriter that Jarmolinsky had been working at, the first letter of the name has been spoken. What we then get is uh, a sort of parallel uh, narration of the studies of Lonrot in Jarmolinsky's books, which all have to do with a hidden and religious and orthodox Judaism and what we find of other crimes that are going on. The Hotel du Nord was the first one in the West. We find uh, a man named Acevedo is uh, murdered with a sign saying the second letter of the name has been spoken in the uh, East. There is a kidnapping um, and a letter is written in a rhombus, uh, which decorates the walls of a paint shop, the outer walls of a paint shop, saying the last letters of the name, letter of the name has been spoken. Um, and so to the extent that we think that there's something going on, is the tetragrammaton means the four-lettered thing, it's the word for the unspeakable name of God. That is the known unspeakable name of God, as opposed to the hidden name of God, which would complete God's set of names and release who knows what powers. Mm. Um, the Tetragrammaton, YHWH Vovhe in Hebrew, uh, pronounced together Yahweh in English or Yahweh or Jehovah, um, but for Orthodox Jews never to be pronounced ever. If they see it written, they say something else depending upon context, what that something else will be. Um, the supp- supposition is, in Lonrod's mind, that although it says the last letter of the name has been spoken, there are really, there's another letter yet to go. Somebody um, sends a, a map to Trevor Annes and it shows an equilateral triangle among those three points of crime, the two murders and the kidnapping. But Lonrod says, ah, now we're going to catch him. I know where the fourth place will be. And he thinks of it not as an equilateral triangle, but as a four-set thing, which goes unspoken. And the fourth point, of course, makes that not an equilateral triangle, but another rhombus. There are duplications and duplications and duplications. He goes to the house, which is Trisle the one mentioned in the opening mm-hmm. paragraph. And in fact, um, as he sneakily goes in, He is waylaid by two people who look just like the people who uh, kidnapped the fellow in the third crime. It then transpires that the fellow was himself Red Sherlock, that those were his henchmen. The kidnapping was a put up job and all of what he had done had that is Sherlock had been to create messages that he figured Lonrot had the kind of mind to understand would draw him here. This is crucial in, to the extent that this book, this story is a uh, commentary on detective stories, because in the very first fully achieved tale of the great detective, 1845, I think it is, um, pose uh, the purloined letter. I think most mm-hmm. historians of the genre put that as the first fully achieved example of the genre. What the detective, C. Auguste Dupin, says is the police have been unable to solve the letter, the mystery, who stole this letter, which would compromise the the queen, um, because they could not understand that the mind of the person, what he has to do is match his mind with that of the criminal. And what we have here is the criminal has decided to match his mind with the known mind of the writer. Uh, he explains that is Sherlock explains to uh, to, to that the first murder had been accidental, but he got details of it from the news report in the Yiddish Zeitung. <laughs> and knowing that he constru- that is Sherlock constructed all of these other hints ...in order to bring Lonrod to him so that he finally, Sherlock, as opposed to all other criminals, would be able to kill him. Their colloquy between the two is wonderful, mm-hmm. and at the end, having recognized that Lonrod has has managed to trap him in the idea of entrapment, um, he's, he then makes another suggestion. Sherlock... Lonrod says to him, when in some other incarnation you hunt me, feign to commit or document a crime at A, then a second crime at B, eight kilometers from A, then a third crime at C, four kilometers from A and B, halfway en route between the two. Wait for me later at D, two kilometers from A and C, halfway once again between both. Kill me at D, as you are now going to kill me at trois Leroy. The next time I kill you, said Sherlock, I promise you the labyrinth made of a single straight line, which is invisible and everlasting. Hmm. He stepped back a few paces, then carefully he fired. That's the end of the story, and all I would say to wrap that up is That is mainly the end of the first reading of the story, but my interjections in the Precy have to do with the fact that the story reads quite differently when you read it the second time, because the second time around, we know that what looks like it's accidental is intentional. Mm -hmm. What looks like it's superstitious is constructed by a non-believer, and we know that it is not the detective hunting the criminal, but the criminal hunting the detective. Mm-hmm. So, as in the story itself, everything gets doubled.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we're back to, as you pointed out, Ners, which he likes, mm-hmm. Borges likes so well. Does this sound like the the well, story yeah. and its readings to you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love that you uh, referenced that sp- specific C. Auguste Dupin story. There's four of them. But the purloin letter is the most famous, I think. Uh, may- mm. Maybe... It's the shortest, I think. (laughs) And maybe it's the first. I'm not sure. Um, But one of the things that I discovered about it relatively recently, which I think is amazing, is within the text of that story itself, there are subtle references that I did not pick up when I read it originally. Um, And in subsequent uh, readings of it, I've found them to be supported by um, (laughs) an investigation. What's so funny about that story is... It's all about finding the missing letter, right? And we yes. have a missing letter here.
1: <laughs> well, the plot is about finding the missing letter. I think the story really is about how does one understand evidence in the world?
0: Uh, well, it depends on which story we're talking about, but I agree. <laughs> Both of them, actually. Yes. But I meant the Poe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the contents of the letter are never revealed at the end of the story. However, they are inferable. <laughs> and yes. um what's funny is it 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 is a much more monstrous story once you know the contents of the letter and uh maybe we'll leave that for another time but um <laughs> I think that that uh, what's so interesting here is we have a similar ending in that uh what we thought of as uh, sort of a Sherlock Holmes style murder mystery, a serial killer investigated by an unusual detective um, is actually uh, uh, all designed to get the detective, right? It's all designed to get the detective. And um, there is a phrase in uh, the TV Tropes website to describe this kind of story, and it's called the Batman Gambit, where Batman (laughs) knows the Joker so well, he knows how the Joker's mind works that he uses the Joker's proclivities and bents to manipulate the Joker into such a situation so that he can arrest him. <laughs> now, in this case, right. it's quite the opposite. It's not the detective searching for the criminal. It's the criminal trying to entrap the detective. And I note um, that although we start rather slowly in this story, it's almost exactly a half hour to read, Um when we're in the middle, um, the the middle murders, or middle uh, crimes, as they appear, um, go much faster. But then the final journey by train, which is a long line, um, to a neighborhood where the streets are littered with crud, and the animals drink from these cruddy puddles, and the river is soiled by things floating in it... Um, And we've come to a house where everything is doubled, um, is much longer and much more ponderous and much more reflective, which kind of fits the story. And then we get that final reveal that the murderer (laughs) would be in prison, and we kind of find that they're both in prison. The criminal and the detective are both in prison, in prison forever in their eternal chase of each other. Because, yes, he will kill me in this life, but in the next life, I ask that you <laughs> to interrupt me a different way. And it's very, very meta. It's m- it much... Is. It's. It feels like the Sea Augusta Pant stories, which are unusual because there's four of them. They're, this is the same character, repeated again and again. And this is why Sherlock Holmes the series became so popular and entrapped its author in writing more and more Sherlock Holmes stories. Although he had many other stories he wanted to tell his audience demanded more, yep. his editors demanded more. Borges gives us just such a detective, but and he does it. it in one story and he does it in one story. And yet we feel like he is a detective like uh, Dupin and a detective like Holmes and they're, all the names in here i think are heavy with meaning um lonrot has red in in his name so does uh the the bad guy what's his name charlotte Sh- Sh- it's
1: red Char- Sherlock
0: yes. um and charlock has red in it as well but red red and we've got uh actually charlock
1: is the german word for scarlet fever mm-hmm. i think that this is uh, a reference, um, uh, a very low-level reference to uh, The Mask of the Red Death, another story uh-huh. of Poe.
0: I, um, uh, I was thinking it was a uh, reference to the first Sherlock Holmes story, uh, The Study in Scarlet.
1: It, it it could well be. It could, it, be, it both. could be both. Yes. Because, uh, as mentioned, uh, Borges is multilingual. In the first Dupin story, the purloined letter, the explanation of what it means to match minds with the, uh, with the criminal is given by Dupin using, as an example, a game of trying to challenge people to find places written on a map. Mm-hmm. And he points out that most people look for the smallest possible writing, but the winners are the ones who look for the big words like Asia in huge letters separated over the whole map for the continent. And they don't find it because Mm. the letters aren't nearby. They're the biggest, most obvious ones, but they miss it because they think that their opponent doesn't think that way. Mm. And they're wrong. In other words, when Dupin who calls himself—Lonrod thought of himself as a pure thinker, and Auguste Dupin. But there was something of the adventurer in him and even of the gamester, which already Borges is letting us know that unlike Dupin, who always survives, Lonrod is not able to really do what Dupin does because he doesn't realize that Dupin is a gamester, Mm. just as he doesn't realize that Lonrod— Excuse me. That that red Sherlock is a hunter, not just a criminal.
0: I I want to um, point also to the parallel detective, the more conventional police detective, who thinks that this crime is simple, that it was an accidental murder, that the the what was the name? What, what's Trevoranus? No, I was thinking the kind of jewels that are uh, sapphires. I sapphires think. are blue, right? Um. So they the, vary, but that's
1: the most common yeah,
0: so, um, which I, I think there's a, an, a another uh, Sherlock Holmes story Blue Carbuncle or something <laughs> which is Carbuncle's <laughs> kind of semi-precious stone or whatever um, but uh, I, it, it struck me also that Trev- Trevor Ranus was a strange name I looked it up um, this is a, an early forerunner of, um, of a guy uh, was an early forerunner of evolution, a German named Gottfried Reinhold Treveranus. Um, and in uh, our copy on page 262, the second paragraph, I just, I was thinking how interesting this is. It, I'll just read. The third crime was produced on the 3rd of February. It was, as Treveranus must have guessed, a mere mockery, a simulacrum. I am Griffanius... Ginsburg, Ginsburg, and Griffanius, or Griffinus, I think it's Griffius, right? Um, Throws us back to that opening where our two detectives, the unconventional, thoughtful, rationation style detective um, who gets murdered at the end, versus the conventional, it's just a simple explanation, uh, detective. Says there are none of the uh, hybrid creatures in this this uh, murder. It is simple. You don't need to go looking for the fantastical. Well, we change from a Griffius, which is makes us think of griffins, to Ginsburg, spelled G-I-N-Z-B-E-R-G, to Ginsburg, G-I-N-S-B-U-R-G, all. One name. I endured an interminable week filled with a tenuous false beard. In that, so this is very Sherlock Holmes. He's always dressing up in costume. I think right?
1: we should make clear this is this
0: is Red Sherlock explaining himself to yes.
1: to to Lone
0: Um in that perverse cubicle on Rue de Toulon until my friend spirited me away. So he's actually faking uh, uh, murder, right? From the running Kidnapping. board, yes. Um, from the running board of one of the, them wrote on a stone post. The last letter of the name had been spoken. This sentence revealed that the that the series of crimes was triple, hence the Griffius Ginsburg, Gin, right, and sort of the evolution of that name. This sentence revealed that the series of crimes was triple, and that the public thus understood it. So this is all playing out in the newspapers, and he's he's getting he's hooking his detective uh right. through these notes and this is a lot of what you know movies do with m- murder mysteries and serial killers they're treating this like it's a public uh thing what's so funny is that this is a very very intellectual and private game that two people are playing with within their own heads one teasing the other to find him, the other doing it so he can bring him. And in the end, one of them dies, but eventually both of them will die, and they'll do it again, and they'll do it again, and they'll do it again. And it's, this, is a meta, this story is a meta-commentary on the appeal and an explanation of murder mystery-style detective stories. Amazing.
1: I think I think you're right. I, I, th- reading the de- it's it is a, a longer sh- short story. It is well worth reading in detail because so many of the references uh, just unfold as you look at them. Uh, but but I, I'd like to we haven't the time to to go into those. But I would like to make one more large suggestion about the way in which this resonates with its own history. Borges is a native speaker of Spanish. He lived in Spain. He's a librarian. By general consensus, the first great novel also happens to be perhaps the greatest single work of Spanish literature, which is Don Quixote. Don Quixote centers on a character who has become besotted by the idea of medieval romance. He mistakes chivalric behavior for reality and he then goes forth into the world causing more harm than good holding to his ideals and suffering for them in ways that make us all love him but demonstrating the the misfit between reality and fiction reality always works it always succeeds but it does so in fiction This is what Cervantes shows us delightfully. And I think that's what's going on here. That Lonrot is, in fact, a detective who is besotted by the genre of detective fiction, (laughs) as you pointed out, Jesse. That's why it starts with Poe. And because he's besotted with detective fiction, he seeks to solve a crime in ways that Trevor Annas dismisses, but that Red Sherlock exploits. Because he knows that although the first crime may be random, if you can get people to believe that it is part of a a magic, spiritual, universal, mystical speech, there's always... More to say.
0: Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward sffaudio.